Um, I was reading about James Bartley this past week. I don't know if you recognize that name or not. Let me tell you about him. He lived in the 19th century, uh, was a part of a whaling expedition off of the southern coast of Argentina, and his boat was attacked by a whale, and in kind of the madness and the chaos of it all, he fell overboard. Little did they realize at the time, but he was actually swallowed by the whale, and, and here's why they know that, and really the most outrageous part of his story. The next day, his whaling buddies were continuing in their work. What do you know? They caught a whale. They drug it up, drug it up next to the boat. They began that process of skinning it, and that's when they noticed that there was something moving around on the inside, and you guessed it, they cut the whale open to find that their shipmate, James Bartley, had been swallowed by that whale and survived it. Now, just a little side note there. I don't want to survive something like that, right? I mean, if that happens to me, just like, I want to be done with it. You know, I, I, I don't want that story uh, to have to tell. Well, according to reports, Bartley had been in the whale's stomach for 36-some hours. His skin was bleached white uh, due to the gastric juices and the effects on his skin. Uh, he went on to live for something like another 16 to 17 years and went blind uh, because of this little ordeal. There's a newspaper clip. You can find it through Google if you want to check it out yourself. And uh, the story goes that in 1891, his story appeared in a newspaper called the St. Louis Globe Democrat, uh, was later republished in another newspaper called the New York World, and also eventually in the Yarmouth uh, Mercury newspaper uh, out of England later that year. And as you can imagine, this story has been scrutinized up and down over the years by all sorts of skeptics, but it makes you wonder, could it happen? Like, could something like that actually happen and an individual survive it? Well, one thing is for sure, uh, close encounters with whales are, are not uncommon. Um, I once sat in the splash zone at SeaWorld, you know, for the Shamu show. I was up close and personal uh, with a whale, but not quite this up close and personal. This, this video came out last year. Um, I think this is up on the north end of Morse by Cicero, kind of on the other side of the bridge. But uh, for all you kayakers out there, can you imagine, like, can you imagine this moment? Watch this. This whale comes out of the water and catches that kayak. Now, as the story goes, the person survived, uh, a little terrified, if you would, uh, definitely, but somewhat unharmed. But go back to Bartley's story for just a moment. Like, it's, it's hard for us to know whether that story is true or not. But, but here's one more element that this makes the story even more fascinating. Numerous sources report that there's a tombstone in Gloucester, I think that's how you say it, England, I don't think I'm getting that right, uh, that has the message. His, his tombstone says this, James Bartley, a modern-day Jonah. And uh, I read several accounts of his story this past week. You can check it out for yourself uh, as well. But since the beginning of the year, we've been reading through the Bible together as a church and talking about it here on Sundays. Uh, last week, Steve walked us through a bit of the story of Hosea uh, and Gomer. Today, we're going to look at one of the strangest stories in the Old Testament. Some of you have already guessed it. Let's look at Jonah. Uh, if you've got your Bible and you want to turn there, the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah is what's known as a minor prophet. Now, it doesn't mean that he's any less 
significant than any of the others. It's minor because it's a shorter uh, book in the Old Testament of the prophets. There are the major prophets, which are longer books, longer accounts, books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. But Jonah was a prophet who in Israel, lived in Israel during the reign of King Jeroboam II, which was roughly 750 B.C. And like Hosea, Jonah lived during the time frame of 2 Kings chapter 14 because 1 and 2 Kings are history books, and so many of the prophets are found, their lives within the pages of 1 and 2 Kings. And just in case you're not familiar with Jonah's Jonah's story yet, a little bit of a spoiler alert, Uh, like James Bartley, Jonah was uh, swallowed by a giant fish that spit him out onto dry ground three days later. Now, let's just stop right there for a second. Honest, all right, just admit to one another, it's a hard story to get your mind around, especially if you'd say, you know, you're somewhat new to all of this, maybe call yourself a skeptic, maybe you're a realist, you know, and and even call yourself uh, a Christian. I mean, this is one of those stories that we find in the Bible at times that just, you know, you just step back and think, like, could something like that possibly happen? And so if you are a skeptic, if you're new to church, if you're new to Christianity, I just want you to know that we get, we respect you know, your skepticism. And it's not wrong. It's not bad to ask questions. It's, it's a good thing, actually, to, to study for yourself, to seek out helpful co- counsel and, and information. It's important to study the Word of God. That's why we're reading through the Bible together as a church. I just want you to know I've got my questions. We've all got our questions. You're welcome here. Like, you are welcome he- here with your questions as we study uh, together. But here's something interesting. Like, not once did Jesus question the validity and truth of Scripture. And even Jesus, as we're going to see in just a few minutes, referred to Jonah, and not only as a historic person, but also to Jonah's story as an actual event. And just for a little bit of fun, let me give you one more reason why you might not want to trust a guy in his story, a guy by the name of Jonah. Uh, it's this, that Jonah was a hypocrite. I mean, he really was. And, and if there's one thing we can all agree on, it's that no one likes a hypocrite. And so as we jump into his story today, I'm excited because I can guarantee you that no matter where you are in your walk or pursuit or relationship with the Lord, uh, that there's something in Jonah's fishy story uh, for you. And, and that's true of you if you follow Jesus. If you claim to follow Jesus, uh, you and I, we're going to be confronted by our own hypocrisy at times. Maybe today's the day for that, especially when it comes to sharing the message of God's love with, with people that we don't like. And then there are others, those of you that would say, you know what, I, I'm suspicious. I've got a lot of questions about the existence of God. Uh, you're going to get a chance to say, today to, to learn about His love and compassion for people that are living in rebellion against Him. All right, so Jonah chapter 1, uh, the first verses together. Let's dive in. We'll have the words on the screen as well. Uh, here's what we read, and this is from the New Living Translation today, uh, just kind of mixing it up on you this morning, but uh, here's what we read. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh, announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people Now, right away, we learn that God gave a very specific assignment, directive to Jonah. He said, go to the city city of Nineveh and preach against its wickedness. That seems pretty clear, right? Kind of gets to the point. Here's the assignment that I have for you. And in Jonah's day, everybody knew about Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh was this 
great city within the Assyrian Empire, which is going to become a really kind of important world power at this point in history, especially as it has to do with the Israelites. But Nineveh was this massive, uh, popular, important city. Uh, if we go to a map even today, uh, many archaeologists believe that Nineveh is over here near Mosul, Iraq. And just to give you some perspective, here's Israel, here's Jerusalem, and so Jonah's from this area, and God is calling him something like 600 miles away uh, to go and, and to preach to the people of Nineveh so that they would be saved. Again, sounds like a great assignment if you're a prophet, all right, to be instructed by God to go to this city to preach a message. Look at Jonah's response, verse 3, but Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. There's a lot going on in this verse, these verses here, but for starters, we learn that Jonah's running from the Lord. He's going to go in the opposite direction, which is an important detail we'll circle back to in a moment, but his desired destination is also important because we see from the text that he is going to go down, likely from the area of Samaria, which is just north of Jerusalem, but he's going to go down to this port city known as Joppa, and, and it's from there that he's going to catch a boat to this city called Tarshish. Now, to go back to a map, <clears throat> if Israel, if, if, if Jordan or Jerusalem is over here by Israel and Jordan, the Mediterranean Sea extends to the west. Many believe that Tarshish was over here in the area of Gibraltar on the southern part of Spain, uh, just across from, from Morocco. And, and according to Google Maps, from Nineveh, that's a, a 5,271-kilometer journey, so approximately 3,000 miles. The point is this. It's, it's as far from Nineveh as you can get, and here's why. Many believe that Tarshish, and there are some references to this in the Old Testament, was basically the ends of the world that this was as far west as you can get. Remember, this is before the days of the great explorers. This is before the time of Christopher Columbus sailing the, the Atlantic Ocean. And so Tarshish was about as far west as you could possibly get. Again, it's the edge, really, of the planet. And Jonah, again, a prophet of God, which means he was a special messenger sent by God to speak a truth. This is where Jonah's hypocrisy is exposed. Because again, look at verse 3, look at his response. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction, all right, to get away, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. And the text says that he bought a ticket. If you study the Hebrew, all right, the implications of the word Hebrew could mean buy a ticket, could also mean that he chartered the boat. Basically, he'd spend every dollar he had if needed to get as far away from Nineveh and God as he could. And at first glance, you'd assume that Jonah was running because he's afraid of failure. But if you get into chapter 4, and we will in just a moment, and you've, some of you have already read it, you find that he, he's not afraid of failure. In fact, it's the opposite. He's afraid that he's going to succeed because listen to what Jonah says to God after the, the people of Nineveh. Again, this is fast forward in the story. Realize how wicked they are and turn to God. Here's Jonah's response to that in chapter 4, verse 1. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry, so he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran away to Tarshish. 
He says, I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Our campus pastor, Jerry Neville, uh, no, our Carmel campus pastor, Jerry Neville, kind of, we've been working on this message together this week. He made a discovery about these words that I think are really interesting, and that is that when Jonah speaks of God's mercy and compassion, he's actually quoting from Old Testament books, Exodus, uh, Exodus 34, 6 to be exact, and Psalm 86, uh, 5 and 15. And so basically, jo Jonah is quoting back to God words of his own character, like, God, this is what you're like. Like, this is your reputation, your, your kindness. He basically tells God, I know that you will keep your word and that you're going to save those wicked people. Again, talk about a hypocrite. I mean, he actually had the nerve to get mad at God for being merciful and compassionate to, to his enemies, the Ninevites. It's, good, it's a good thing that none of us are like Jonah, right? <laughs> It's a good thing that we never act like this at all. I mean, we get along with everyone all the time, you know, unless they're, they're in driving slow in the fast lane, right, and you keep waiting for them to, to get over to the slow lane or they, they borrow things and never return them. Or how about those people that hit reply to all to an email when they could have just done reply? You know, I mean, they just, they just need to reply to the sender and, and not to everyone. We chuckle, but, but if we're honest, like when it comes to obeying God, sharing his love, demonstrating his compassion to our enemies. We all got a little Jonah in us, maybe more than we care to admit. Can I ask you to, to start thinking about something this morning, if you haven't already, and, and maybe this is something you'll continue to think about even as the day goes on and maybe in some of your time alone with the Lord tomorrow, but you got any Ninevites in your life? Maybe it's a, a coworker you just can't stand, and that coworker just demands their way all the time. Or an obnoxious neighbor, you know, just kind of gets under your skin and drives you crazy. Could be the in-law that has to make everything so complicated. Like, really, why does this have to be so difficult? It's, uh, you're an in, Ninevite could be an ex that just has to get their way. It also could be a difficult or rebellious child, that Republican or Democrat you see on social media. We've all got Ninevites in our lives. And just like Jonah, it's easy for us to pretend that, that we love God but refuse to allow it to penetrate our hearts and our minds the way we see and think about people and certainly the way we share His love and and message of his goodness with people that we can't stand. How did Jonah avoid it? He's going to run in the opposite direction from what God told him to do, and he kept going until God got in the way. Because in, chapter, in verse 4, back to chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 4, it tells us that the Lord sent a great wind, and he caused a violent storm, and everyone on the ship thought they were going to die. Now, these sailors were likely Phoenicians. If you think back to your Western civilization days. The Phoenicians were known as sea people. They were experts on the sea. They worshiped many different gods, and they believed there was a god of the sea. They believed there was a god of the land. They believed there was a god of, of the sky, really a god for everything. And so what do you do when a violent storm comes up on the sea? You pray to the god of the sea, but not Jonah, because somehow Jonah manages to sleep through this chaotic storm. 
kind of reminds me of when my daughter, Kate, was a lot younger. She was probably four or five, and there was a short phase where she was scared of thunderstorms. And so I can remember this one night, we had a, a big thunderstorm, and she came walking into our room and really not wanting to deal with it. I just got out of bed and went and got in bed with her. And it didn't take very long before I fell asleep. And I'll always remember this. I remember Kate waking me up, and she just had this terrified look on her face as she said, Daddy, please don't make that noise. And see, I snore. And my wife says amen in the room probably. And so my snoring was enough to take away that fear of thunderstorms. She's not afraid of storms anymore. Like she kicked me out of her room that evening and I've never had to go back. And, and again, she's not scared of storms. Somehow Jonah managed to sleep through it all. And the only reason he woke up during the storm is because one of the sailors went to him and asked him to pray to his God, to Jonah's God, in hopes that it would help. And here's Jonah's response, chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. Jonah answered him, I am a Hebrew. Again, these Phoenicians were not. They served many gods. Jonah says, I worship the Lord, meaning one God, all capital, meaning Yahweh, the God of heaven. Look at this, who made the sea and the land. And the sailors were terrified when they heard this, for he had already told them that he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it? They groaned. And look at Jonah's response. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, what should we do to you to stop this storm? Jonah says, throw me into the sea and it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. Now imagine you're one of the sailors. And again, remember, they've got a completely different view. They've got a different faith system. They believe in many gods, uh, gods that ruled the world. Jonah claims that he worships the one true God. Yahweh, who created the land and the sea, and he admitted that he was running from God and even says, this whole thing's my fault. Throw me overboard. I'll be the sacrifice. And it may sound like Jonah's having a change of heart or all of a sudden he's become this really good guy, selflessly sacrificing his life for everyone on board. But I think what's really true is that his heart is pretty calloused, so much so that he'd rather die than serve the Ninevites. And if you keep reading, you'll learn the sailors reluctantly throw Jonah overboard. Verse 15, they picked him up and they threw him into the raging sea and the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. Don't miss this, all right? Jonah goes overboard, the storm comes to an end. These pagan sailors praise Jonah's God. That's grace. That's God's ability to work, His sovereign power, even in the most confusing, chaotic, frustrating sorts of circumstances. Can I just add this? I know we're living in chaotic, frustrating, confusing times. Genesis Church, God's still changing lives. He's still helping people find their way back to Himself. And even in Jonah's disobedience, God reveals His goodness all right, to a group of people who are far from him. I mean, God was willing to work through a hypocrite like Jonah. Imagine what he can do through faithful, obedient people who lay down their lives for him. Well, we finally arrive at the part of the story that I know is so familiar to, to so many of us. Look at verse 17. It says, now the Lord had arranged for a great fish. It doesn't say whale. All right, it just says great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. And again, I realize this is the part of the story that it's easier at times to say, I'm just going to rip this page out. You know, maybe it makes it a little easier to believe, but let's not miss the bigger message. 
of Jonah's story because throughout chapter 1, we learn that God commanded Jonah to go to Nineveh, uh, and he responded in rebellion, not by just running from God, but look at the pattern that we find in chapter 1, Jonah's pattern of rebellion. He went down to Joppa to find a ship. He went down below deck where he laid down to sleep, verse 5. He was thrown down into the sea, verse 15, and he was swallowed down by a great fish. It's not coincidental. I was reading in several accounts this past week that the writing, the events are intentional as we see this deterioration, as we see this ongoing decline in Jonah. He's a frustrated man. He's growing in his complacency. He's not listening to God. And I don't know about you, but personally, I've never survived inside of a fish for three days. Again, I don't want that to be a part of my testimony, all right? But I think we all have experienced patterns of rebellion when it comes to our walk, when it comes to our relationship with the Lord. And according to Scripture, the word to describe this rebellion is sin. And sin is just simply this. Sin is doing things our way instead of God's. It's, it's choosing our own path uh, because we don't trust or like what God has for us. It's it's greed and, and hoarding resources for ourselves. It's lusting after people and things that weren't intended for you or for me. They weren't, these aren't a part of God's blessings for us. Sin, sin is rebelling against what God wants for us, which was Jonah's issue. What did he do? He turned and went in the opposite direction. Sin is turning and moving in the opposite direction. Jonah foolishly resisted God's call to go to Nineveh because he was angry that God would indeed extend his love and mercy to the wicked people of Nineveh. And to his credit, they were. I mean, Jonah had it right. Read for yourselves about the Ninevites, the Assyrians. They, they had a horrible reputation. They were barbarians who ruthlessly tortured and executed anyone who got in their way. I mean, the, the closest modern-day comparison would be uh, ISIS and, and some of the stories that we've heard, some horrific stories uh, that, that they've acted on. Like, but like each of us, Jonah struggled with pride, which allows us to turn, a, to turn an eye, a blind eye to our own shortcomings while judging others and the wickedness that we perceive inside of them that really is the same wickedness that can impact us in our lives too. And in Jonah's instance, his sin landed him, you could say, in a swimming pool of gastric juices, you know, in a really large fish for three long days. And if you keep reading chapter 2, you'll read Jonah's beautiful but kind of sort of weak prayer asking for forgiveness. And I say weak prayer because while Jonah turns to God in this time of trouble, he doesn't really ever admit that he was wrong. He just cries out to God, appeals for the same mercy that Jonah refuses to extend and share with the people of Nineveh, which is disheartening when you think about it. You know, because apparently Jonah's prayer was so gross, his selfish, righteous prayer, that the fish vomited him out. Uh, how's that for a mental picture for the consequences of our sin? But Jonah 3, Jonah chapter 3 begins with Jonah on shore. And here, he's got another chance. And we see that even just the few words. Again, another example of the grace of God. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. We don't have time to elaborate on this, but there's something sweet here. Even we saw it in the story of Hosea and Gomer this past week that even in our rebellion, even in my rebellion and your rebellion, God still pursued Jonah. He didn't give up on Jonah. He won't give up on us. 
verse 3, chapter 3, verse 3. It says, this, this time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. And on the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. And so Jonah obeys this time. He's not thrilled about it. And what's his message to the Ninevites? 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. In the Hebrew, Jonah's message to them is something like five words long, to which some of you are like, why, Paul, do you need 35 minutes? Like, I mean, if Jonah can get to the point, you know, in just five words, like, why does it take so long? Maybe a little lesson here from Jonah. But notice his message. No mention of God. No mention of forgiveness. No instruction on how the people can make things right with God. In spite of his, you could say, lack of effort, God still moves. And look at what happens in them in verses 5 and 10. It says, The people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. Verse 10, When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, He changed His mind and did not carry out the destruction He had threatened. Even in Jonah's disobedience, even in Jonah's minimal effort, God uses him to carry a message that's going to move in the hearts of people in Nineveh and lead them to repentance and repentance from their wickedness. And as a result, this great city and its people would be spared from judgment, which is great news, right? Unless you're Jonah. Chapter 4, look at how he responds. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That's why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager, eager to turn back from destroying people. Think about this. What right did Jonah have to be upset about? I mean, Jonah experienced God's grace again and again. And even after experiencing forgiveness and salvation for himself, he couldn't stomach the idea of God extending that same grace and love to another group of people. And it'd be easy to shake our heads at Jonah and say, you know what, shame on him. But aren't we tempted every day to act and respond in the same way? Because if you keep reading in chapter 4, you learn that Jonah was so disgusted by the grace of God and that grace extended towards the Ninevites that he asked God to kill him two different times. And a couple of interesting observations about that, which, and we'll talk about what these mean for us, but did you know that God will eventually destroy Nineveh because of its wickedness? If you're following along in the reading plan, you'll read about it tomorrow as it's described in the book of Nahum, all right? And so maybe Jonah knew what he was talking about. Maybe Jonah was on to something. But regardless, it's a reminder of God's grace and his compassion that it's always greater. And the other thing is that while Jonah's story ends with a big question mark, I mean, think about it. The book of Jonah, if you know this, you can look at it yourself if you've got your Bible. And the book of Jonah ends with Jonah arguing with God about Nineveh and finally ends with God asking the question of Jonah, should I not also be concerned about this great city? And that's it. We know nothing else. I mean, Jonah's complaining. He wants to die. And here's God's response to him. And we're only left wondering, what will Jonah do next? He has the next move. 
And we find ourselves in a similar position today. Forced to ask ourselves, what's this mean for me? God, what do you want to do through me? What's my next move? To that answer that question, I want to look at Jesus' words in the, the New Testament Gospel of Luke before we wrap up here, uh, specifically Luke chapter 11, uh, verse 29, if you want to turn there, uh, Luke 11, 29 to 30. Here's what Luke records about Jesus. It says, as the crowds pressed in on Jesus, he said this, and this is 750-some years later, this evil generation keeps asking me to show them a miraculous sign but the only sign I will give them is the sign of Jonah. All right, again, these are Jesus' words. What happened to him, Jesus said, was a sign to the people of Nineveh that God had sent him. What happens to the Son of Man will be a sign to these people that he was sent by God. Now, the title of the Son of Man was one of Jesus' favorite ways to refer to himself. All right, but what's the sign? What's the sign of Jonah? Well, as we discussed earlier, like James Bartley, if Jonah had been in the belly of a fish for three days, it's fair to say that his complexion might have been somewhat altered, all right? The color of his skin a little whiter than it had been before he went in. And so Jonah's story of surviving with the fish coupled with this ghostly appearance might have gotten the Ninevites' attention. Maybe, maybe not. But again, listen to what Jesus says about himself. What happens to the Son of Man will be assigned to these people that he was sent by God. And again, the Son of Man was one of Jesus' favorite ways to refer to himself, and not because it sounded cool. It was his way of referring to himself because Jesus is the one and only Messiah that God sent to save the world from sin and wickedness. And Jesus' point was this, that just like Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish as the Messiah, he, Jesus, would die and then spend three days in the grave before God raised him from the dead to prove that he has the power to forgive all of our sin and all of our wickedness, no matter who you are. And it would be easy to mock Jesus for making such a ridiculous claim and writing him off as a crazy person. But all 11 writers of the New Testament not only claim that Jesus is the Messiah, but they boldly testify that he died on a cross to pay for the sins of the world and that three days later God raised him from the dead, proving that he is exactly who he claimed to be and that he has the power to forgive anyone of anything. And all he expects of us is that we put our faith and our trust in him. See, Jesus did what only he could do. He died. And God raised him from the dead in our place to pay for our sin and rebellion against God. And when we, like the Ninevites in this story, are willing to admit that we've sinned and accept God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ, we are forgiven of our sins and we are restored in our relationship with God. And it doesn't end there because Jesus promises that because of our faith in him, that he will give us the gift of his presence the Holy Spirit, to live inside of us so that we can live brand new lives that are becoming more and more like Jesus each and every day. And that's not just the good news. Like, that's the best news ever. Will you bow your heads with me? I want to spend just a couple more moments with you, and then we're going to close today. We're not going to sing a final song, but as we wrap up today, I, I want to end by taking some time to think about how we can, we can use the example of Jonah's story to respond to Jesus today. 
And, and to begin with, I, I want to talk to those of you that would say, you know what, I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. I've, I've put my faith in the Lord. I, I want you to take a moment and pray and identify any Ninevites in your life right now. Like, who do you struggle to love? Who, who makes your blood boil? Who do you hate? Is there anyone in your life that you hope God secretly destroys? Be honest. Does a face come to mind, a name come to mind? Now take a moment and confess. As God works in you, confess your hatred towards your enemies and, and go all the way. You're not going to have to tell anybody, so confess. Confess what you feel. You know, remember, God knows the details. But sometimes actually verbalizing it really kind of sets us free, sets the Spirit of God free to change our hearts and our minds. And then would you be willing to pray? You can do that right now. Maybe that's something that God's going to bring to mind later today, but pray that God will soften your heart. Pray that God will bring peace between you and someone else. Pray that God will use you as light and hope and as a blessing to someone else. I think the last thing, if you haven't already, is, is to repent and to tell God you're sorry and to agree with Him that you want to leave your hatred and disobedience behind. I mean, repentance is saying, I've been going in the wrong direction, and now it's time to turn around and go back in the direction that God has for me. You keep praying. There's, there's no rush. There's, there's time. Let, let God lead you. But let me, let me talk to someone else here today who maybe you just say, I'm far from God. And maybe you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you're totally skeptical of church, the Bible, and religion. Maybe this past year has caused some numbness, some callousness in your own heart. Maybe you've watched other so-called Christians and the way they've responded and reacted, and it's just, it's put you in a tough place. Maybe you're on the fence about Jesus right now. I want to challenge you to pray too, to God in your heart. Tell Him your doubts. Tell Him your hurts. Admit that you've got questions This is a big step, this next one, but, but maybe admit that you've sinned, that you've turned from God, that you've sinned against Him, that like Jonah, you've rejected His plan and done things your way, to, to admit that like Jonah, you've willingly run in the other direction, and your life feels like it's been spiraling because of it. And here's where it gets good. If, if you're truly ready to be free from your past, forgiven of your sin, made right with God, to get back on the right track with Him, I want to invite you to put your trust in Jesus, to recommit your life to Jesus, 
to receive Christ. And, and for some of you, you've never done that before. And you can do that today. By just praying, Lord Jesus, I want you in my life. Forgive me. I've been running the other direction, but today I'm turning towards you. Put your trust in Jesus. And share it. Somebody's got to know. We've got to tell someone. You've got people in your life that need to see Jesus through you. Now's the time. Let's do it. Let's go out into this world and let's be light and hope. Let's, let's be Jesus to others. Let's serve our merciful and compassionate God. As the Psalm 86 15 says, but you, O Lord, are a God of compassion and mercy, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. God, you've given us a bold mission here at Genesis to help others find their way back to you. And uh, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your goodness and provision, your generosity. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for putting us here in Noblesville, for putting us here in the heart of Hamilton County and just the influence and, and the, the extent that you have enabled us and want to enable us to reach others around us. Lord, we are here. We are your servants. We are ready to serve you. And we know that begins this afternoon, even as we walk out of these doors with everyone we come in contact with. Lord, continue your work in us. Make us more and more like Jesus each day. Thanks for a story like Jonah. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.